His word is his will. And you are asking according to his will. Then you don't have to pray if it be thy will, because you know what his will is. Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of and the Internet's best kept secret. Well, today's episode is going to be pretty dense. There's going to be a lot uh, that I want to cover to set it up for the next couple of weeks. And so because of that, I'm just going to skip all of my usual chit chat and commercials except for this one. This weekend, yes, you heard me, this weekend, my good friend and one of my favorite people on the planet, Matt Spinks, is coming to Cleveland. We are going to do three days, four sessions over the weekend of bliss, glory, worship, preaching, healing, prophetic ministry. I can't wait. It's going to be so good. Um, And the following weekend, I am headed to his place in Fort Wayne for more, a back-to-back weekend extravaganza. So all of the info for that can be found on his website, which I will link to the description in this episode. If you just hit details on the little podcast player, it will pull up the links. You can see everything that you need. So with all of that out of the way, let's get to today's subject, which you probably could have guessed by the title, is healing. Now, I'm going to expand on what I said last week. Last week, I shared about how God powerfully and radically transformed my family through the supernatural healing of my mother. And how that event was what got me started on the path of divine healing. But I also shared a little bit about the concept of our inner ecosystem of beliefs, about how nothing you believe is actually isolated, but it's connected to a larger inner convergence of your worldview, experiences, personality type, and so much more. I also shared about how because healing is inextricably linked with the nature of God, simply talking about healing can quickly and easily expose bad thinking about God. And lastly, I mentioned that the two core beliefs that I want to unpack over the course of this series are that God is always willing to heal us and that the time for healing is always Now, now, as you can imagine, uh, there's a lot to cover here, and there might be some things that we need to circle around a few times or come back to over the course of this series. But my hope, my true goal here is not that you would learn some theological ideas. No, my desire for you is that this revelation of God's healing nature would go off like a bomb inside of your heart, and then it would propel you to release that wonder-working Holy Ghost power of Jesus into the world around you. I don't know about you, but that, to me, just sounds like a good time. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to just get right at the heart of all of this by going to a passage in Luke chapter 5. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered in leprosy. When he saw Jesus, 
he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Let's just pray for a minute. Jesus, I thank you that you are always willing. I thank you that you are the definitive and authoritative and final revelation of the Godhead. You are the exact image of the Father. And if we can find it in you, we know that that's what God is like. Lord, I pray that you would just renew our mental image of God. You would renew the way that we see you and the way that we see reality. And that at the very center of it all would be your blood, would be your cross. And that would become our lens by which we see everything, especially how we read the Bible. God, I thank you that in Christ you revealed that you are willing. And I pray, God, that you give me the words to speak. And I pray that, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation would help people dismantle any um, bad or lacking ideas about your nature. Just help us see you and discover you in a fresh way through this series. Amen. If you're a believer... It is easy to believe that God has the ability to heal. After all, the Bible begins with a miracle. It says God spoke everything into existence. So out of nothing, he created everything. And our entire faith rests on a miracle that Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh, died a very real and horrible death by crucifixion and rose to life again three days later. Now, Paul goes so far to say as if that supernatural miraculous event didn't take place, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied above all men for their foolishness. God is higher than all of the laws of physics. He's not bound by time or space. And if God is all-powerful, then no matter how much power is exerted, a limitless supply still remains untapped. And so we know, we know that it is no harder for God to remove cancerous cells from someone's body than it is to speak a new solar system into existence. So to believe in God on some level is to believe in miracles. We have no problem with this. Our problem is that way, way deep down in our guts, in our heart of hearts, we find it difficult to believe that God is willing to heal us. And my question is why? Why is it so hard for us to believe that God is that good and compassionate and present that he would want to heal everyone. I suspect that it's a nasty cocktail of disappointments and bad theology. And so over the next few weeks, I want to dive into the theological side of healing. Now, for some of you listening, I may have already just lost you at theological, and I completely understand that hesitancy. You might be thinking, well, I thought this was a supernatural healing course, and it is. But if we think about supernatural healing like a fruit, 
then theology is the garden that it grows from. If our thinking is full of weeds or diseased plants, it can really hinder our faith. You know, for instance, one time, my friend Stephen met another believer who had a severe limp. He was walking with a cane. And so Stephen asked this guy if he could pray for him. And he said, of course, please do. So my friend Stephen prayed for him and he was instantly, supernaturally healed. He didn't need his cane anymore, which is amazing. Yay. But instead of being excited, this guy got angry and began shouting about how Stephen was using witchcraft. Wait, what? So it's okay to pray in the name of Jesus as long as nothing happens. But if something does happen, then it's witchcraft. I don't know exactly what was going on in that guy's noggin, but clearly there was some bad teaching bouncing around in there preventing him from correctly discerning the reality of God's power. No, my interest is not in discussing theology for theology's sake. What I want is for you to get out there and see miracles through your own hands. That being said, though, I'm going to focus for a while on uprooting some of the ideas that I find most unhelpful or dangerous. This may not be like an exhaustive list of all the junk that people believe about healing, but for me, these are like some of the core things that really seem to pop up and hinder people's faith for healing. Everything that we do outwardly as believers flows from what we think and feel inwardly, whether it's conscious or not. And so here is an excellent quote from Richard Rohr that I think really hits the nail on the head and provides us a good launching point. Now it is a little bit long, but it is also loaded with gold. So Richard Rohr says, hermeneutics is the technical word for a method of interpreting sacred texts. If someone does not have a consistent and declared hermeneutic, their understanding of scripture is whimsical and subjective. A good, solid biblical teacher must come clean about their manner of interpretation early on, or you have no foundation for trusting what they say. Just saying it is in scripture as most do, is largely meaningless because anyone can find a workable proof text for whatever they want to believe somewhere in the Bible. This is why many have so little trust in Christians today. Now, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Richard Rohr, he goes on to describe something called the tricycle of faith. He says, We will move forward on our tricycle of faith with only three good wheels, tradition, scripture, and experience. If we leave off any of these three wheels, our interpretations of scripture and reality will be unstable and biased according to our egoic need of the moment. Christians who say only scripture end up being unconsciously dishonest and inconsistent because they are relying on their own tradition of interpreting those scriptures without acknowledging it. Even more importantly, we must recognize that we cannot not rely on our own experience. There is no such thing as a completely unbiased opinion. So since we all use tradition and experience anyway, why not admit it and thereby hold ourselves accountable? And I think that really sums it up well. So keep that idea of a tricycle in your mind, because I'm going to refer back to that quite a lot. 
Every single one of us believes what we believe because of a combination of experience, tradition, and scripture. And nobody is exempt from this. We all do it. So with that in mind, I want to talk to you about what I think is probably the most unhelpful idea in the body of Christ today. And there's a lot, but I find this to be particularly disastrous for the faith. It's something called cessationism. Now, although cessationism is a minority opinion, its influence is undeniably felt all over the body of Christ. Cessationism is the idea that all of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased with the completion of the Scriptures. It's this belief that we have the Bible, and now God doesn't want or need to do miracles. So healing, tongues, prophecy, all of those things were for another pre-written Bible era. Now, I say all this with the utmost respect for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you believe in cessationism, I love you. I value you. um, I think you have amazing things to bring to the table. But I am convinced that the decision to believe this doctrine is actually a heart decision and not a scriptural one and a dangerous one at that. So as Richard Rohr pointed out with with the tricycle, It's actually impossible to throw out personal experience in our Bible reading. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you right now because I've had a dramatic healing experience. I don't mean this to be insulting, but even though cessationists often believe that they are making scriptural arguments, they are often completely unaware of how deeply their negative experiences and traditions are skewing their views. There's a charismatic scholar out there named Dr. Michael Brown who has a radio show called The Lion of Fire. And there's a great segment he does every once in a while where he'll invite cessationists to call in and prove their stance with scripture. Now, this is important because there are loads of arguments out there against divine healing, even some good ones. But he will cut them off unless they are arguing with scripture. And it's amazing because he'll have like a dozen calls and it's, it's the same story every single time. The fact is, when it comes down to it, the Bible says absolutely nothing, nothing jack, jack squat, zip, zip, or zilch that would lead anyone to believe that God is out of the miracle business. Now, this doesn't mean that people don't bring good criticisms to the table, The modern charismatic movement can be downright embarrassing at times. There are all kinds of charlatans out there, abusers, counterfeiters, money-hungry, private, jet-flying, pension-swindling psychopaths who clog their arteries with stakes purchased by tax-free offering money. I will be the first to admit that there have been terrible, terrible things said and done in the name of the Holy Spirit. But when it comes down to it, Even if people are right to be suspicious because of their experiences, it's important to note that that's all that they are, their experiences. And we all know that while experiences can and should inform our interpretation of Scripture, that doesn't mean that we have the right to redefine Scripture as we please to suit our experiences. And so, one by one, Michael Brown gently, and and sometimes not so gently, helps cessationists see that their arguments aren't actually scriptural, but experiential. 
Now, you might have a lot of legitimate reasons for not believing in the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, but they won't be found in the Bible. For example, (laughs) one of the main scriptures that's used is 1 Corinthians 13, where it says this, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known." Now, the argument is often that this passage is describing how when that which is perfect, which in their argument is the Bible, you know, when the canon closed, then God stopped doing miracles and tongues. But honestly, this just doesn't work. You know, for one thing, knowledge is one of the things on the list that will pass away. As far as I know, as far as I can tell, We still have knowledge. And you know what's not on that list is healing. And secondly, it seems pretty obvious when you actually read that full passage that it's talking about the second coming of Christ, the full manifestation of heaven. You can't... (laughs) You can't look at your Bible face to face, okay? You can't be fully known by the Bible. I mean, really, it just doesn't work. It is clearly talking about a person and trying to shove a book in its place just leads to a lot of really weird and awkward problems. Not to mention that if we're going back to the idea of the tricycle, um, This interpretation of thinking that Paul was thinking about the completion of the canon of Scripture, that idea is almost nowhere in church history. It's only very recently that people began to start to interpret it that way. And again, you have millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of believers who have experienced otherwise. And so right there, that's one, two, three strikes. Church experience, uh, church history doesn't support it. Experience doesn't support it. And honestly, if you're really, truly being honest with the text, it doesn't support it either. Okay. Now, the other main text that's used all the time, probably a lot more frequently, is this one in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is sufficient for conviction, correction, and training. So they'll read that and they'll say, see, the Bible is sufficient. We don't need tongues and prophecy. To need those would be to say that the Bible isn't enough. But first of all, I just want to remind everyone that the whole point of why Jesus came was to bring us into fellowship with the Trinity, to have a personal, living relationship with God face to face. Yes, of course this involves the Bible, but it also involves prayer, encounter, fellowship with other believers, and so much more. Any good husband will find a variety of ways to say I love you to his wife constantly. So to me, this argument is like a husband saying to his wife, well, why would you need me to say I love you when I wrote that card for you 20 years ago? It says it right there. 
The fact is, the human heart needs to hear directly from God that He loves us just as much as we need to read it daily. Jesus said, Man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He didn't say that proceeded from the mouth of God. But secondly, I was graciously using the ESV terminology of this verse, but I think honestly it's a bit of a misleading way to translate that word sufficient. Sufficient implies that it's all that's needed, but the Greek word is ophelimos, which according to Strong's concordance means useful, advantageous, beneficial, or profitable. So most translations will say profitable, beneficial, or useful. And that's quite a bit of a different picture, isn't it? I agree. The scriptures are so fantastically, wonderfully, beautifully helpful for all aspects of life in Christ. But they are there to enhance and establish our connection with God, not to replace it. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot more time on cessationism, but can you see how these ideas are lurking in virtually every corner of the Western church. But why? Why are we so suspicious of the supernatural? Where did this come from? In a 2014 sermon, Kevin Dedmond explained this so masterfully when he pointed out that for 1,500 years, the church believed that miracles were both normal and essential for Christian life. It wasn't until the Reformation that this idea of cessationism crept in. Now, as a Protestant, I am so thankful for Luther and Calvin and everybody else. I'm not here to tarnish their legacy, but they certainly weren't perfect. Back in those days, the Catholic Church was massively corrupt, and they taught that God did miracles to validate the authority of the Catholic Church. So they used the presence of miracles to justify all kinds of evil and wicked abuse. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's not like anybody would try to use miracles to validate their depravity today, would they? But along came the Reformers who, in reaction to the Catholic Church, taught that miracles weren't for the validation of the Catholic Church, but to validate the authority of the Bible. But here's the thing, though. Miracles are not simply a sign to establish authority. To be sure, miracles are there to establish the authority of God and His kingdom, but they are also a result of God's authority. They are a manifestation of his rule and reign, and they're an outflow of his nature. Okay, so this teaching, coupled with the massive cultural shift called the Age of Enlightenment, when people began to see God not as a personal being who interacts with creation, but more like a cosmic clockmaker who basically set it in motion and stepped away— all of this kind of came together and is now the reason that the supernatural is still regarded with deep suspicion to this day. I mean, think about it. In popular culture, people are fine with you being a Christian as long as it's a sort of social humanistic gospel. But if you actually believe in the supernatural, in the resurrection, in miracles, in prayer, well, then you get opened up to all kinds of vicious criticism. The simple fact is, when it comes to scriptural arguments, 
cessationism has nothing to stand on. I have noticed that in my conversations with people, when they see that cessationism isn't biblical, the next question that often pops up is, well, if the gifts of the Spirit are for today, why haven't I experienced them? And I think Kenneth Hagin really nailed it when he explained that we all know that salvation is for every man, woman, and child. Everyone was included in the atoning, in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. But we also know that people are free to accept or reject this gift. Well, healing is no different. It is a gift of God and people are free to accept or reject it as they wish. Now, I I don't know that everybody is consciously rejecting it, but the sad fact is we have 500 years of tradition built around the rejection of the supernatural. And so this is snowballed into a situation where it's normal for people to go their entire lives without experiencing the miraculous or to be suspicious of it and reject it as evil when they do. Here's a beautiful quote from Benny Johnson. She says, Scripture says we have the mind of Christ. It says that we have died and have been raised with Christ. It says that our old sinful nature has gone and we are a new creation with Christ living in us. The Bible is 100% true. So, if I'm not experiencing those statements all of the time, then there must be a reality that is greater and truer than the one that I am experiencing. And this quote rings so true to me. The Bible is constantly inviting us to elevate and to raise our expectation of what is possible, not to lower it. But for a myriad of reasons, we have all experienced disappointments. You know, maybe we prayed for God to heal someone and they ended up dying. Or maybe um, a leader who claimed to walk in the Holy Spirit really hurt us or had some kind of awful moral failure. Or maybe for some of you, you spent thousands of dollars going to a seminary that trained you to think this way. And if healing is real, not only were you taught wrong, but you've been missing out. And I get it. Nobody likes to miss out. Nobody likes to find out that they were wrong. You know, it's like John Crowder often says, finding out you've been duped for 30 years is a lot better than finding out you've been duped for 31 The problem is, it is within these gaps in our experience that we create and defend elaborate theological fortresses to shield us from the pain of disappointment. It's theology out of that need to explain things rather than rise up to the standard that scripture is setting. We all do this. We all try to find subtle ways of lowering that standard. You know, we'll say things like, If somebody didn't get healed, it's because God doesn't always will for it to happen. Or, well, I've never seen healing, so that church down the street must be deceived or lying. And there are entire denominations, traditions, and systems built around these faulty foundations of theology born in the gaps. issue a challenge today. Jesus said that we will know a tree by its fruit. 
So what are the direct results of your beliefs? When I first encountered teaching proclaiming that Jesus continues to heal through the hands of believers today, initially, I was skeptical. I mean, how could that be true? How could so many good, sincere, Jesus-loving people miss out on something so huge if that is indeed the case? But you know what? At that time in my life, I never saw anyone healed. It's a bit strange when you think about it, how churches will teach that God causes sickness, but then will also pray to that same God to give doctors wisdom to eradicate sickness. Well, isn't that going against the will of God? But if sickness isn't the will of God, why is it so much of a stretch to think that healing isn't just restricted to medicinal avenues, but could also come through supernatural healing? And so I began to realize these charismatics might be teaching something that is foreign and unfamiliar to me, but there's no denying the results. My mom's leg was broken and now it's not. She was half deaf with hearing aids and now she's not. The fruit of my beliefs was a lot of unanswered prayers. The fruit of their beliefs, well, that was thousands and thousands of miracles. And so I began to think maybe, just maybe, the issue wasn't with their beliefs, but maybe it was with mine. So what I'd like to invite you to do today is to put down your arguments, your experiences, your traditions, and your disappointments, and just take a good, long look at Jesus. It's pretty easy to take verses out of context and argue any position that you want. But I would like to propose to you today that instead of an interpretive lens of experience or tradition, we let Jesus be our lens. What if the final and ultimate self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ was the big wheel on our tricycle? Jesus said to Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Colossians 1 says he is the exact image of the invisible God. Hebrews says he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. As Brad Jerzak often says, if we want to know what God is really like, we need to look at Jesus. Bill Johnson says that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. So if we can't find it in Jesus, we have permission to question it. Later on in this series, we're going to take a look at some of those Old Testament instances that seem to indicate that God is the author of sickness. But for now, let's put that aside. Just put a pin in it because that's an entirely different animal that needs its own separate episode. But for now, Let's just look at the life of Jesus to see if we can find any evidence at all for sickness being the will of God. Did Jesus ever give anyone cancer? Did Jesus ever tell anybody that he couldn't heal them for any reason? Let's take a look. 
Matthew 8.16, he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Matthew 12.15, Jesus healed them all. Matthew 14.14, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Matthew 15.13, a large crowd came to him, bringing with them all those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet and he healed them all. Matthew 21.14, they came to him in the temple and he healed them. Luke 4.40, all those who were sick and had very diseases were brought to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Luke 9.11, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Matthew 9.35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 19.2, a large crowd followed him and he healed them there. Mark 3.10, he healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Mark 6.56, and as many as touched him were being cured. Luke 6.18, those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. Luke 5.15, but the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Matthew 4.24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniac, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them all. Mark 1.34, he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Luke 6.19, all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. Luke 7.21, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to the many who were blind. And John 6.2, they saw the signs which he was performing on all those who were sick. (laughs) Are you getting the picture here? Good, because I didn't even get to my favorite one, Acts 10, 38. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. I didn't even share all the verses with you. The fact is, there is a flood of verses about how every single person who came to Jesus was healed without exception. Not to mention the times where Jesus explicitly stated things like, The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life abundant. Or when Jesus says, I came to destroy the works of the devil. So the real question is, was there anybody ever left out? Did Jesus ever once send someone away unhealed? Did he ever tell them that they had to learn a lesson first? Did he ever just give somebody sickness? Hello? Is anyone out there? I'm trying to find verses that support this position. The answer, of course is no. The only one that I can think of, the only straggling outlier, is a quote from Jesus in the book of Revelation where he says, Behold, I will cast her onto a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Okay, so other than this one-off verse in Revelation, I can't ever find a time where Jesus, who is the definitive, authoritative, and final self-revelation of God's nature, giving or leaving someone with sickness. There's a lot of things that you can back up with the Bible, 
But if you can't back it up with Jesus, then I think it calls for an adjustment. Jesus said that we would do the same works that he did and greater. In the Great Commission, he said, go and make disciples and teach them to obey all the things that I commanded. All of the things. Does all things not include Matthew 10, 8, where he commanded his disciples to heal the sick and raise the dead? Mark 16 says believers will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So if your current beliefs about healing don't make space for this, maybe it's time for a change. If your current beliefs have been causing you to miss out, well, maybe it's time to get some new ones. And if your traditions have allowed you to comfortably water down the standard of scripture to suit your current level of experience, well, then maybe it's time to get a new standard. Maybe, like the leper in Luke 5, it's time to come to Jesus with a completely open heart and ask him, Lord, are you willing? Because maybe at the end of the day, this isn't really about theology. Maybe it's about a heart that's afraid of what Jesus will say if we get vulnerable and ask. My friends, it is my overwhelming and confident conviction that the answer is always, I am willing, be cleansed. So next week, we're going to take a closer and deeper look at some of those passages, the ones that are often misused and abused and twisted to teach that healing is not always God's will. We're going to get to the one in Revelation. We're going to get to the Syrophoenician woman that Jesus inexplicably called a dog. Um, we're going to look at the man born blind who Jesus said he was born that way for God's glory um, and many others. It's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to it. I love you all. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. If you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do so. All you've got to do is go down and hit the link in the description, visit our Patreon page, and sign up. Any amount of monthly giving is going to unlock all kinds of extras and behind-the-scenes rewards. Another quick and easy way you can support us is you can just give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Each and every one of those goes a long way. I'm praying that God seals everything you heard today in your heart and that you stay rooted and grounded in His everlasting love. Thanks again. God bless.